to uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 25 to 30. And uh, I wanted to read uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 22 uh, to 30, just to give us a context. So we'll be looking at specifically uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 25 to 30, and then then we'll explain uh, what it says. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible version. Uh, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he also searches the hearts, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless the reading of his word. I've entitled this sermon, God's Eternal Goodness and Christian Perseverance. God's Eternal Goodness and Christian Perseverance. Uh, And I've, I've entitled it that because I believe that essentially Paul, as a general idea, he's talking about Uh, to the Romans, the victory that they have in Christ, but he's pointing them to the perfections of God, God's eternal goodness, uh, which is certainly inseparably constrained to all of God's perfections, which are the sum of his attributes uh, that makes him who he is. But his eternal goodness is what Paul is trying to point to. And also, in light of the fact that God is eternally good, how then do Christians live and how do we persevere? How do we persevere? And so Paul is concerned that the Romans not only know that they have the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ, uh, but he also wants them to know that along those lines, they have no condemnation. And so as we look to this text, we have not gotten away from uh, the reality that's painted before us, the divine reality of uh, being spared of God's wrath because uh, the sins of the elect are placed on Christ. And Christ being the substitute for sinners, now thereby we have our eternal righteousness, his righteousness credited to us. And so we have no condemnation. Uh, But in this text, there's a little more. As Paul begins to build, not only from that point in manners of our sanctification and also our glorification, seeing Christ as he is, but he's also working toward the plight of Israel, the people Israel. And we'll see that as we begin to look at this chapter and work our way through the persecution that Christians face all the way up through Romans chapter 9 to 11, 
where Paul spells out what is God's plan for his people Israel. So he's concerned with this. He's concerned also that the Christian perseveres. He wants the Christian to persevere in the world before him. He wants the Christian to not only persevere as a general principle, but also to take painstaking diligence. Take painstaking diligence in this area and intentionally press toward the goal of being with Christ in eternal glory and reigning with him. And when you, and, and when you think about this, we talked about some of this last week. That is the Christian's goal. The Christian's goal is to be with Christ, to reign with Christ. And the whole sum of the Christian life should add up to that desire, but also that focus, that direction. That as the Christian lives his or her life in this world before them, uh, they want to live in such a way so as to inherit eternal glory with Christ. That's the idea. Uh, What I want to do this morning, I want to keep this term perseverance from how we normally have heard it in the past. And that is we typically hear it as something general. Uh, We typically hear it as something general. Uh, We hear it as something static, something that's there for us, but you and I don't have to achieve anything or work toward anything or perform anything to get there. But what we should hear is the fact that we have victory through adversity. We have victory through adversity. And that's what Paul is not only trying to show by example of himself as he is walking the Christian life as an example to the Gentiles specifically and primarily. uh, But he wants to show that we have victory in Christ and that victory is met with challenges in every single way. But it is victory nonetheless. He wants us to consider the pressure release of eternal glory, that we do have this eternal glory that awaits us. Once you have been pressed by suffering and hardship, it leads to eternal glory. And so that's what we're that's what we're after. Uh, Paul is dealing with ultimate victory, but he's also dealing with victory as it relates to the day to day walking in Christ. Uh, But essentially, you could think of it this way. The crowning achievement of being a faithful soldier in the face of great antagonism within yourself, uh, that is your personal war against sin in your members, which is Paul spells out in Romans chapter seven and the personal war against the sin in the world system, as Paul has said in so many other places. And then you have a personal war for the purity of the true church, said by Paul and others throughout the New Testament. But the crowning achievement, what you'll notice about it, this victory in Christ does not come from men. It does not come from men. It's not bestowed on you by men. It's not men who necessarily tell you that you're actually victorious. Sometimes men will tell you because you're not bowing to their uh, definition of victory or to their kingdom uh, and their kingdoms that they want to prove victorious. Sometimes they pretend that you have no victory. But this victory comes in Christ and it comes from Christ. So then when we prove victorious or when we're fighting the battle as we are, as Paul is saying in Romans chapter eight, we do not need to boast in men. We do not need to place our ultimate hope in men and we do not need to rest in men as the foundation of our assurance. So all of this, and we said it as Romans one began, all of this is about Christ. It really is about Christ. It's not just talking about Christ 
or talking about men who we think talk about Christ. It's actually talking about Christ and having a focus on him and what he promises and what he has for us. Because then when we have that as our focus, then he truly is our hope and our assurance. He truly is. And then nothing can get in the way of that. No one can get in the way of that. And that's what Paul will write later at the end of this text as he talks about what can what or who can separate us from the love of God. And he becomes convinced that nothing can. And I believe he's not only saying that as a principle for the Christian life and to spell out victory, he's saying it because he does not want the Christian to be distracted and think that the Christian should rest in anyone or anything else. So our hope then is truly in Christ. And that that's what I've come to encourage you with this morning. If we look at it a little closer in Romans chapter eight, verse 26, I'll read verse 26 for you, for it says in the same way, the spirit. Now, after spelling out victory along the lines of our sanctification and how we're walking with Christ, he says in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. And then he goes to the area of prayer, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here, Paul is teaching a reliance upon the spirit of God, a true reliance upon the spirit of God. He then is our strength in our weakness. Elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul talks about that. He talks about boasting in his weakness because then Christ is ultimately magnified. But he is our strength in our weakness, in the midst of our weakness, because apart from him in every way, we are indeed weak. And so Paul is trying to point us to the one who is supremely strong, eternally strong, and gives us strength in our weakness. And where he begins is Paul goes with this in the arena of He talks about prayer. Now, we're certain that the Bible tells us to pray and it tells us to pray always. In fact, it says pray without ceasing. And we see that in elsewhere where Paul writes it to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians, chapter five, verses 16 to 18. But often. Like everything else in modern religion, prayer has become a badge of honor. It's become a badge of honor. People are rating themselves on the eloquence of their prayers. And so like everything else in Romans, they have taken it and made it seminar, academic, stuffy, something corporate, something shirt and tie. Uh, But what it really is that we're after is we're after the theological truth so that you and I can live in a world that is antagonistic toward us. And live victoriously in Christ. Truly victorious. And listen to this. Not only victorious in Christ, but free in Christ. We want to be free in him. We want to have freedom in Christ. But there's this rating system that has even divorced the thing that's supposed to be manifesting God's strength in us. As we are weak. And it is becoming a show of strength in the flesh. And that is this arena of People praying to be seen. They're rating themselves on the eloquence of it. They're rating themselves on how many times you've seen them uh, pray. Men are rating themselves on the theological depth of their 
prayers as men rate the level of theological expertise in their prayers. And what's absent from this text is Paul mentioning any of those things as true prayer. In fact, I'll tell you why that's absent. And even, and I've seen it, you've seen it in, in, you see it sometimes in these heavily saturated peer environments where badges of holiness are being compared with one another. You even see as people are praying, someone will pop up and look around and they want to know how many people's heads are bowed and eyes are closed when we pray. It's all becoming performance. And I'm here to encourage your heart this morning because none of that is what Paul is after. And none of it is what is concerning to Paul and certainly not concerned, uh, not concerning to the spirit of God. Because, again, the goal is not to enslave you to men. The goal is to make you free in Christ. And Jesus warned about this theater of prayer. He warned about it. For one, he warned about it because it's very important to the life of the Christian. But it's also very important that it is something that is performed in your weakness so that the strength of God would be upon you. So that you can see God's strength uh, be evident and active in your life. Man's system rewards those who, against the cautions of the Lord, pray as the hypocrites do. They reward each other for praying as the hypocrites do. And those aren't my words. These are Jesus's words. Jesus thought this was very important. And so he mentions it. And I believe that it has to be mentioned here because we have the word pray. And he says that we do not know how to pray at times. And I believe that that's when there should be a great reliance upon the spirit who intercedes, not a reliance upon some formula. But Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 5. And I believe his warning is very much tied to what Paul is about to say in the text before us. He said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray. You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. That's the purpose for which they pray. So that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. I don't want you to receive payment in full in this life. I want you to pray in such a way so that now. You are still awaiting the great reward as you see God answer prayers because you're praying with the right motive. So for us, we're different than the hypocrites or we should be different than the hypocrites, because in this text, in this passage, in this verse, when we pray, it is in step with our perseverance in Christ. Much has been said about how to pray. Do you want to know how to pray? You pray, you cry out in your weakness. That's how you pray. You don't cry out in your strength. Oh, I'm about to wax eloquent. I'm about to quote other men in my prayers. It's you pray in your weakness. For when you are weak, you are strong in Christ. When you are weak, you are that much more dependent on his will. You pray from your weakness. But what happens when we don't know how to pray? What happens when we don't know how to pray? And I'm speaking to those who truly love Christ. They want to honor Christ. And yet sometimes we can't find the words. We can't find the words to our prayers. When we know that we have been saved, when we know that we have no condemnation, yet the words fail us. Because perhaps you're encircled by so much 
trauma, persecution. The world at large is growing increasingly wicked. The hypocrisy is just, it knows no bounds. And often our mouths can't, we can't fix the words to come out of our mouths and pray in the way that we want to say the things that we want to say. What then do we do? Do we attend a prayer conference? Do we attend a prayer seminar? Do we sign up for a prayer class from the leading experts on prayer? No, because the answer is actually in the text. It's in verse 26 and beyond. The source of our assurance and salvation is also our intercessor in prayer when we do not know how to pray. The spirit of God. When we do not know how to pray, we don't simply just wax eloquent for the sake of eloquence. Because that's praying as the hypocrites do to be seen by men. We don't simply quote the surrounding leading minds, we're told, the evangelical pop stars, so that they'll be pleased with our prayers. No, we rely upon God's spirit. We don't uh, utter a static babble and somehow believe that that's some kind of spirit language because that's devilish. That's fleshly. What we do is we rely upon the spirit when we are at a loss for words. And guess what the spirit does? The spirit will intercede on our behalf. When we do not know how to pray. For Paul says in the same way the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. We do not know how to pray as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It doesn't say form a prayer circle and everybody get quiet. And then the first one that feels like something's flashing in your mind, go ahead and pray. Sometimes it says wait. Wait for God's spirit to intercede on your behalf. And in your weakness, he knows what your prayer is. He knows what your prayer is. Look what it says. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. With groanings too deep for words. Listen to this. You have the intercession of Christ searching the spirit. You have the intercession of Christ searching the spirit. So he's not only advocating to the father. He is in true Trinitarian perfect fellowship. Consulting the Holy Spirit of God who searches us and knows our hearts. So the spirit is searching us as we are. We've lost the words for prayer for whatever reason. And even those things we cannot express with our mouths. Nothing here says fake it till you make it. The spirit knows what to express on our behalf. You know, we're talking about God. We're talking about deity. here. Listen to this. The spirit knows what to express on our behalf when all we have are exasperations, sighs, speechlessness or the words fail us. Because groanings is used here, and I believe that that is the context with which it's used. It is then, as a part of our no condemnation status, he searches us and brings our shortcomings and expressions or lack of all the things people say we should do or always do in prayer and brings even those things before Christ, who understands all things pertaining to each one of us. And so there's this intimate searching of us 
And the things that you and I cannot express as we ought to, as we should, as we're able. Because we are finite and we fail at times to put the words together. And yet the Spirit searches those things. Well, look at verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Talking about Christ. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's so much there. It is not that the groanings too deep for words are somehow our unintelligible languages or some kind of spirit language that we have to tap into as the charismatics teach. No, this is inexpressible by us because of those things that assail our perseverance. And yet we have the desire to meet with God in prayer. And so Paul is saying, because he's been talking about all these things that are hostile to our faith, that are hostile to our sanctification, that we're at war with. And as we fix our mouths to pray, we often lack the things that are necessary to say in prayer. But yet we are not rejected those who are in Christ. He doesn't say attend a conference on prayer. He says attend to yourself and then go before God and you will be interceded. When your mouth can't express, the spirit is searching your heart and Christ is searching the spirit and Christ is advocating on your behalf according to the standard of the will of God. Expressing what you cannot at times. You haven't heard this. And the reason you haven't heard it in many circles is because there's always a rush. There's a rush to speak. There's a rush to display this badge of eloquence. There's a rush to I'm going before God's throne and I'm just going to rush into his presence like I rush into everything else. But here it's telling God's people that the spirit of God will intercede for you and Christ being in that process and both living in you, you now have one who will advocate on your behalf and communicate the will of God. This is all very intelligible. This is all understandable. So you see that. You see that. When our feeble words fail us, the spirit intercedes for us. Acts on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. This is divine accomplishment of God's will for us, even when we can't express what we ought to express. I don't want to trivialize this, but we can even understand this somewhat on a human level. We have small children and sometimes they can't express the very thing that they need in the best way that we would expect that expression to take place. But we know what they need and we know how to deliver it and we know how to give it to them. And with us, we're fallen and yet redeemed by the grace of God according to our salvation, but fallen because of the fall. And in that sense, sometimes we do have trouble uh, understanding what is necessary and what is needed. But we get it. At some point, we get it. My point is how much more so with God and his perfection, knowing exactly who we are, knowing that he's purchased us and knowing what we need exactly and then knowing how to deliver it according to his will. When you and I can't express it in the way that we want to express it. 
Because there is a place where Christians who simply can't express things in, in a manner, whether it be out of the things that just, again, assail them, assail their hearts, uh, their, 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 their hearts are quieted at times because of the many things that they're troubled by, and they can't put all those words together. And yet, Christ can. Christ can. And the Spirit of God searches us to ensure that what we can't express openly, it goes before God and is accomplished according to his divine will. This definitely deals with man's constitution, searching the spirit of man uh, to come to a place where the will of God can be accomplished in him. But as I said, these are certainly intelligible things and understood in the heavenly places as they pertain to the will of God. There's nothing here that's chaotic because it says he searches the hearts. That's the seat of the affections. That's everything that we want and everything that we need. And it is the central part of us, the hearts. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. These things are worked out according to his will. They are worked out for us according to his will. Even when our expression cannot communicate what we want to be worked out according to his will. And this is both related to the temporal working out of his will for the Christian here and the working out of his will in eternity as it is established on the foundation of Christ as our hope and salvation. And that would be what you see related to verses 27 and 28. And I say all that. All that is very important to understand because of the fact that this is a believer that Paul has in view himself first and then the Christian's in the Lord's church uh, uh, in, in the sense that he's communicating to them about these things. But he's, he's getting them to see that they have a desire to pray. He's not dealing with the people who don't want to pray or want to pray for the wrong reasons. He's dealing with people who want to pray, and yet there is a great exasperation that is weighing them down. And so they lack the words. They lack the formality, the communication it takes to express what is necessary uh, for them. And that happens. If we are all indeed, and, and, and we just step back for a moment from the rush of modern evangelicalism, if we step back, sometimes we lack the words. Sometimes you and I can't come up with the thing that we want to say in the way we want to say it because we're trying to guard ourselves from ritualism. We want to express our prayers to God. Sometimes a bit of Indignation, righteous indignation befalls us and we're trying to figure out how do I put this into words? How do I go before God and cry out in this way? We don't always have that snappy catchphrase that we can utter to God because God is not a genie. And sometimes that lack of things that we have to say is God commanding us to trust him in our weakness. Sometimes we try to cry out in our strength. And yet we ought to be patient in our weakness and see his intercession. You can look back on your own personal life and walk in Christ and see those times where you may not have actively prayed for something. 
But you have been hoping for something and yet Christ accomplished it. God accomplished it. He accomplished it being in you or others. And you see it. And you may have said to yourself, I, I don't recall even praying that actively. But yet I did want that. I did desire that. Well, you were searched by God's spirit. You were searched by the Holy Spirit and you were brought before God himself, Christ making intercession. And that whatever that thing was, it aligned to God's will and it was accomplished for his goodness, his eternal goodness and for the good purposes he has for you. That is truly the meaning of prayer. That is truly the meaning of prayer. And I'm not saying this is always the case. I'm not saying the Christian life is one in which you never have the words to say. Therefore, you can never pray. But there are times when the Christian does not have a ready expression to offer before God. There are times. Paul accounts for that. And praise be to God that that's the case. So we have Christ for our hope and our salvation. In a sense, when we pray, we are set before God. We are set before God. We are set before God personally. It's not simply that we're setting things before God or we're setting an agenda before God. But we are setting ourselves before God. And then also the way that this is worded as we look at the combination of verse 28 and even verse 29 together. And I'll read it. As we are set before God, the things he works together according to his will are set before us who are called, the called, the elect, according to his purpose. That's standard. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So it's not just a blanket statement of God causing all things to work together for good in the generic sense. This is intimate. This is personal. If you love God, then all things are there that God causes to work together for good. This is why it's called eternal goodness and the perseverance of the Christian. To those who are called, the called according to his purpose. And then it talks even more about within the divine scheme of how God has operated that purpose, you see the intimacy involved in the relationship between God and his children. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I'll talk a little bit about what that means, but let's step back here. You can see why predestination is important. You can see why God's foreknowledge and understanding it is important. You can see why the doctrine of divine election is important. Because that is all tied into what God accomplishes on behalf of his Christians. On behalf of the followers of Christ. On behalf of his children. On behalf of his elect. That is important. So when people are saying that these things are, be it secondary unimportant simply for the academic institution, simply for some conference seminar. When people treat these things that way, they are cutting you off from the prayers that you want answered because it is according to these things that God works in the lives of his people. That's how he works. That's how he strengthens you in your weakness that, you know, well, wait a minute. 
He not only causes things to work together for my good because I love him. He not only intercedes for me, but all that is tied to the fact that he has predestined me to become conformed to the image of his son. I'm predestined. I'm foreknown by him. All of it is tied to how God moves on my behalf. So I can't make it secondary. I can't make it a non-essential as if those exist at all. I can't make it seem as though those are too theologically lofty to import into the lives of people and encourage them by. You can't do that. Because once you do that, you cut people off from the way that God actually moves in their lives. And when you cut people off from something, you have to replace it with something else. And normally, as we see, it's yourself and your pragmatic programs. You begin to input those as the means of here is how God moves on your behalf by me doing something. Oh, and then what happens next is we begin to worship the people who act on our behalf and we only speak a little bit about Christ. That's not what we're here to do. We have to set before you foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, divine election. We have to talk about predestination, justification, sanctification. We have to talk about these things because that is how God moves on behalf of his people. Those are the arenas that he moves. But listen, in none of this are we asking him what we so desire for ourselves apart from his will. But his will is being accomplished in us as we are strengthened in the purpose for which we are called. Let me repeat that. His will is being accomplished in us as we are strengthened in the purpose for which we are called. All things is not everything we want for ourselves, but it's all things which are solely tied to the will of God, our purpose. Well, this word purpose is one that I believe has a very specific meaning, and Paul explains it. Because it's not left up to us to create the purpose as Christians. We're not told to create the purpose or pray for the purpose or live a purpose-driven life, we're called to actually conform to God's purpose. And we're actually told if we're his, we have been by him conformed to that purpose. And we're also told that he himself causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to that purpose. That's why I say all this starts with God. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with all these neatly packaged Books that are meant to make men rich. It starts with God because he is rich. All things are tied to the will of God. Paul explains this. He gives us what it is. In other words, we ask, why are we being called? Why are we being called? Grammatically, we know that this is in the present tense and it's a participle. And that's important because it explains the action. It explains the action. But it explains the action in a way that we're to conceive of it as a continuous act. <clears throat> why then are we being brought before God in intercession? That's why it shows up as present. Because it is talking about, yes, our election. Yes, something that has happened. But it's being talk about, talked about in such a way so as to conform our thoughts to what are we being called to God for in this arena 
of intercession. Why then are we being brought before God in intercession? What then must we remember related to our no condemnation status and our victory in Christ Jesus? Well, I read it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn, that is first in rank, first in rank among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And watch this. This is, this is the purpose tied up in a nutshell. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That is why you're being brought before him, even in intercession, in view for you, in view for your perseverance. The fact that he calls you to persevere is so that you can be glorified, so that you can be glorified and so that you can be with Christ for all time in eternity. Well, you see, he established our salvation and not us. He established our salvation and not us. He predestined the called to this conformed image of his son. That's the image that we bear. That's the image that we should bear. It is becoming a sad thing in confessing Christendom that people are bearing each other's images. But we're supposed to bear the image of Christ. I don't want to look like other people. I want to look like Christ. I want to be what Christ has conformed me to. God has conformed me who believes in him and loves him, he's conforming to the image of his son. That's who I should look like. So he predestined us to that. And listen, he's not speaking in the general sense of every human being made in God's image. There is a place to understand that as every single person is indeed, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, made in the image of God. That is certainly true. What he's talking about is something much more specific and much more personal. Paul is referring to the elect being predestined and foreknown to be specifically conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Specifically conformed. And this is done in eternity. This is done in eternity and made manifest as you are conceived of, as you begin to live upon this earth, and as that salvation is then made manifest and shown to you. You are conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And for what purpose for Christ then? Well, it is so that. So listen, it's not simply for the end goal of glorification, because your your glorification brings you somewhere, and it brings you before someone. This was so that in the case of Christ, because he is the one ultimately worthy of all of our worship, so that Christ may be first in rank among the many brethren. Listen, Christ is first in rank. Not some other personality, not a conglomerate of personalities. Christ is first in rank among the brethren. Nobody else on this earth is first in rank Among the brethren, only Christ. And so all these things take place when we talk about election, 
when we talk about predestination, it is to show Christ as the preeminent one, first in rank. It's not saying firstborn as if he's born uh, as if he's born in the sense of strictly conceiving of him as humanity. He is the I am. He's self-existent. He's eternal. It's talking about him being first in rank. That's important. So verse 30 says it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. It's showing you how he's first in rank. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can not only elect individuals, but he can bring them through the course of their lives successfully because he has already said he doesn't leave behind any of his sheep. He doesn't lose any of his sheep. He can assure their salvation and he can make good on their salvation. He can justify them perfectly. He can sanctify them and render them holy before God. And then he can bring them to the conclusion of their life where they'll be ultimately proven to be sanctified and made perfect and bring them into eternal fellowship and then bring them before himself in ultimate worship. Only Christ can do that. So let's pause here. We should think it a very arrogant and putrid and disgusting thing when men pretend that they are first in rank and think that they can do this. All these cults have to stop thinking that Christ is second in rank. He's first in rank. And if he's first in rank, then he himself is preeminent over all persons. And he's preeminent because of these glorious doctrines. They show how he's first in rank. So we need to stop hearing, oh, we can't teach election. We can't teach predestination. We can't teach foreknowledge because we're assaulting his rank when we say that those things need to be refrained. And those things that point to his rank point to the fact of our justification, our first of all, our election, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And then it points ultimately to the kingdom. And let me also help you with understanding the context. It not only helps us persevere in Christian hope, it shows how he's also going to bring salvation to pass for the remnant Israel. Because we're looking at this in the context as it points to Romans chapter 9. So when we say all of these things are unimportant, it's because there is a subtle attack against Christ being the first in rank. Somebody who is saying, I am your brother's, wants to step up before you and say, I'm first in rank. And when they're saying they're first in rank, they can't accomplish any of this, so they have to mute the doctrines. They don't want to talk about these because these things exalt Christ. But it's amazing how we see it. It ties to prayer, but it shows us what we ought to pray for. And it shows us when we fail to pray as we ought that God answers our prayers with regard to the things that are said in verses 28 to 30. We see him being first in rank among the many brethren. As we close verse 30, he has predestined. He has called with the effectual call that cannot be resisted once we are called. And then our justification, that one time act whereby God declares the sinner not guilty based on the cross work of Christ as the perfect substitute for sinners. 
And then, as Paul is writing for the Romans, for them, for us, then to be glorified. That is the end goal of it all. We're to be glorified so that we can worship the one who has brought us that far through this life safely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage.